Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love Love at at First first listen. Listen. This season... We're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On December 27, 2002, Jennifer Del Preet was working at a daycare facility in Romeoville, Illinois. One of the children in her care, a nearly four-month-old girl, was struggling to breathe and was nearly limp. Delpreet claimed to have given the infant a slight shake to rouse her, in addition to a few pats, in case anything was lodged in her throat. As the child's condition deteriorated, Jennifer called 911 and reported that the child was not breathing and had no pulse. Paramedics were able to restart the little girl's heart, but she remained unconscious. CAT scans revealed recent as well as older bleeding within the coverings of the brain. A few days later, Retinal hemorrhaging appeared as well, and physicians concluded that the child's injuries were the result of violent shaking at the hand of her most recent caregiver, Jennifer Delpreet, who was charged with child battery. But just over 10 months later, the child died, and the charge was upgraded to murder. At trial, the state's four experts made their case that the evidence of the most recent brain bleed had to have been the result of violent shaking, while the evidence of older bleeds must have meant that the abuse was ongoing. It would seem unlikely that all these medical professionals would have missed some other lingering medical condition, right? But this is wrongful conviction. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. Today we have a shaken baby prosecution in which there appeared to be warning signs that this young infant girl was sick, but the cause was just missed before it was too late. And instead, her death was mistakenly attributed to alleged abuse at the hand of our guest today, Jennifer Delpreet. Welcome to Wrongful Conviction. Well, hello. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. And joining us to help tell this story is Jenny's appellate counsel from Blagan and Garvey, Pat Blagan. Pat, welcome to the show. Thanks. Now, Pat, you became familiar with SBS, shaken baby syndrome, because of this case. And we've covered this faulty hypothesis on wrongful conviction junk science with our host, Josh Dubin, and the executive director of the Center for Integrity and Forensic Sciences, Kate Judson, who will join us later to talk about how it relates to Jenny's prosecution. Now, back in 1971, 
When this hypothesis was first posited by Dr. Dorman Guthkelch, he was searching for the cause of these findings, brain bleeds, retinal bleeds, and brain swelling that were being observed in infants who were either deceased or were, you know, struggling to survive. And he thought that maybe these findings could be the result of the bridging veins of the brain and eyes being severed by the acceleration and deceleration of violent shaking. Does anyone know how this went from a simple hypothesis to a widely or almost universally accepted but not yet exposed junk science that has ruined so many thousands of lives? I don't think he ever intended it to be that way. I think he just wanted parents in England to maybe stop handling their children so roughly, but he wasn't he wasn't saying, oh my God, these things are, are diagnostic of this. But I think it's the difference between the old way that medicine operated, like you know, medical students and doctors were taught, hey, if you find these things, then the answer is X. This is what the patient has. In more recent years, there's been a move to what they call evidence-based medicine. And with that shift, came folks who found, as I mentioned earlier, a growing list of 81 non-traumatic medical conditions that can cause these findings, in addition to traumatic causes, like car wrecks, or even short falls. And increasingly, studies find that if shaking could be the cause, that we should, we almost must expect to see some other very specific injuries. Many cases will also have occipital bone damage, the neck bone. We now expect to see a spinal injury if we can even begin to suspect violent shaking. But before you had to know any of this stuff about SBS, shaking baby syndrome, we'll call it SBS, Jenny, what was your life like and how did you decide to get involved in childcare? I come from a middle-class family living in the Southwest suburbs off of Chicago. I was babysitting since I was 10 and I had my daughter at 18, but I was a good mom and I started babysitting so I could still be with my daughter. And I would bring her with. I just really have a passion for children. They just love me and I just get along with them a lot. I get along with them more than adults. You eventually had a second kid too, right? Yes, I have two children. I have a daughter, Tia. Uh, she's 33. And I have a son, Draven. He's 25. I understand you were a very involved mom. You participated as a room mom at your daughter's school. And in addition to babysitting, you worked part-time at a library. And that's how things went for a while until a friend of yours, another one of the room moms at school, Gleanne Kerr, gave you a new opportunity. Gleanne wanted to bring in more income, bought a home in Romeoville that was a daycare already. She remembered me working with children back in the room mom days and thought of me. So she asked me if I'd work at the daycare. But I didn't want to leave the library because I loved it. So I did both. And what about the family who we're going to refer to as the Z family and the infant in this case, Izzy? From what I understand, you had only known her for about the final eight weeks of her nearly four month long or short life, but you spent a great deal of time with her, feeding her, getting to know her idiosyncrasies. Yeah, she was very, um, she would cry a lot. She seemed like she was in pain. So we went and talked to the mom a few times and told her maybe she has acid reflux. You should, you know, look into that and get her what she needs because she was very, very, I would say touchy, just cried a lot. I also read from the trial that Gleanne had testified that High Z, the baby, would often clench her fist after she ate, unusual for a baby, right? And it was later confirmed that there was evidence that she was having seizures. But all of these red flags had gone unnoticed in addition to another glaring detail. What was not noticed at the time, even though, you know, the pediatrician visits, they had been 
you know, measuring the head circumference was the head grew at an abnormally fast rate, which can be a sign of a chronic subdural hematoma, meaning a bleed in the brain. It's one of the reasons why they, they take those kind of measurements. Brain bleeds are not uncommon at birth and, and, and they're not always dangerous, but they do want to monitor them. What was missed by the doctors before and after and was absent at trial as well was that IZ's head circumference went from the 50th to the 90th percentile in just 10 weeks. You know, our belief is that's the the old brain bleed probably existed at the time the, the head was growing too fast. Eventually, it turned out that these older brain bleeds were likely present before Jenny had even met the child and were likely ongoing through the tragic end of her incredibly short life, which happened during that sleepy week between Christmas and New Year's when the whole world basically grinds to a halt. It was December 27th, 2002. Yes, I was the only one scheduled to work. Leanne had to go out of town for Christmas. It was a great week. It was the first week ever in my life as a single mom of two kids that I paid for everything in cash for Christmas. It was a very good time in my life. I was about 34 and I was doing well on my own for once. And what do you remember from the time you arrived at the daycare that day? So I got there and the Z family came too. She had to work, I guess, but we didn't know that at the time that the baby was sick. She had a fever on Christmas Eve and went into the hospital. I had, wasn't aware of that. She brought me some medicine, said she was sick, some amoxicillin, the pink stuff, and I didn't think anything of it. Babies get sick all the time. And it turns out that amoxicillin taken along with gas relief medication can trigger seizures. So there were just so many things potentially happening inside this poor little girl. So please continue. Well, the mom was a little bit rushed, so she was kind of running in with the kids, and she told me to give her this medicine at one. I put it in the fridge, and she didn't say anything else about it. I didn't know if it was an ear infection or a cold. So I just took the kids. And as I understand it, you had your hands full that day. Yeah, and I have two five-year-olds, a four-year-old, and a three-year-old all around me. Wow. Yeah, that's a full squad. And as you said later to police and repeated consistently ever since, is that while trying to care for all of these other kids, you had fed Izzy and put her down for a nap. And when she awoke around noon, you set her on the couch, made a bottle, and when you returned, you found that she was struggling to breathe. Now, according to police, you never said that you had vigorously shaken her, but you said you had given her a slight shake to try to rouse her. Then you checked her throat for a blockage and gave her a pat on the back, and soon her condition worsened. And I called 911. They asked me to do CPR, which I did. They came in within minutes and they took over and she went off to the hospital. I had to stay there with the kids. So the baby goes to St. Joseph Hospital and they administer epinephrine. They do get the heartbeat restored. They start doing x-rays and C-scans, trying to find out what's wrong with the baby. And it is early on that they find acute, meaning like newer brain bleeds, but they also find chronic, meaning older brain bleeds. And I think one of the initial treating doctors said something like, oh, well, when you see a brain bleed like that, you, you know, you have to assume it's shaken baby or baby abuse or something. They said that the old brain bleed was also caused by abuse, even though we don't know anything else about it other than there was a brain bleed. Right. There was no other information about those older bleeds. And as the days passed, the pediatric critical care doctor noted some retinal hemorrhage and eventually brain swelling, which just confirmed what they believed. While a procedure performed on IZ led to findings that should have again made them question their conclusions and their resolve. So they 
ended up doing a burr hole procedure to alleviate some of the pressure in the brain and evacuate some of the blood. So we had the imaging showing the old brain bleeds, but then that was also confirmed by this surgery because they evacuated old blood from the brain. And they're also seeing evidence of seizures. There's like seizure activity that they're noting when the baby's asleep. And at some other times, uh, there was evidence, at least from Jenny herself and from Glianne Kerr about the clenching of fists and the baby shaking after she ate, that, that perhaps this seizure activity was happening before the baby collapsed and would, of course, give an alternative explanation. But one of the doctors who said this must be shaken baby syndrome said, well, those seizures were a result of the shaken baby syndrome. And that's what I think one of the things that made me realize how dangerous this kind of diagnosis is, is they really are jumping to the conclusion. They say they're not trying to diagnose murder, but they are. And they're doing it from, from very, very limited findings. So instead of paying mind to these signs that something else was clearly going on inside this poor little girl's body and had been potentially since birth, the doctors were doubling down, sticking to the diagnosis that they had made on day one that they had already relayed to police and the Z family on the day IZ was brought in. I called the Z family a few times when I got home that day, and at least for two to three days, to find out how she was. They wouldn't respond. They didn't answer phone calls, voicemails, nothing. This episode is underwritten by global law firm Greenberg Traurig. Through its pro bono program, Greenberg Traurig leverages its more than 2,600 lawyers across 44 offices to serve the greater good of our communities and provide equal access to justice for all. In the field of criminal justice, Greenberg Traurig attorneys have exonerated and freed a man in Philadelphia, represent numerous individuals previously sentenced to life for crimes committed as juveniles in resentencing hearings, and received the American Bar Association's 2021 Exceptional Service Award for death penalty representation for their work on five death penalty cases. GT is reimagining what big law can be because a more just world only happens by design. I got a phone call and they asked if I could come in for more questioning. I thought I was helping them, so I just went in freely without a lawyer. Biggest mistake of my life. At this point, with the certainty of most of the medical establishment behind them, the lead detective, Kenneth Kroll, interrogated you and, let's face it, he had a clear agenda. The interview goes in steps, which I found out later at the evidentiary hearing when Kenneth Kroll explained it. First, they try to just be your friend, and they told me, you know, if you hurt her, you could tell us, you'll just have to go to parenting classes. And I said, no, I did not do that anything to her. I helped her. And then he said, show me with this bear. So he gave me a teddy bear and I had to show him the steps of everything I did precautionary wise to see what was wrong with her. And then he told me I could keep the bear. I don't know why I didn't want the bear. Then he leaves me in the room. They both do. For a long time, they do that so you can think about things and get stressed. So I sat there, and when they came back, they told me they talked to a doctor and that she had a skull fracture, which she never had a skull fracture. They completely lied to me. And I said, there's no way she has that. I was with her the entire time. She never fell. And I was crying by that time because then I felt like they were trying to say I did something. And they kept going at it and going at it and I kept crying and insisting no and I I think they used things that I said against me later they tried to turn things around that I said so that's how the interrogation went right 
Not only were they lying to you in order to try to extract a false confession, but then they skewed the innocent things that you had said, in particular that you had given IZ a, quote, slight shake. So as you know, that Jenny did not confess to shaking the baby, even though they tried to treat it as a confession in her trial. And the detective noted that the demonstration with the bear or the doll or whatever it was, was a very minor slight shake. But in the grand jury, when they were getting Jennifer indicted, they put in evidence that, you know, the kind of shaking necessary to hurt a baby like this would be, you know, it's extremely vigorous and, and aggressive shaking. And then they said, did Jenny admit that she shook the baby? Answer, yes. Without any reference to the amount of force of the shake or that it was a very minor shake. So, Jenny... That was February 11th, 2003, when you were indicted for aggravated battery of a child, which potentially could put you in prison for six to 30 years. And you spent a long night in jail before bonding out. And your family and Cleanne put together the retainer for your attorney. So for the next year, I had to take care of my children and know that I could go away for six to 30 years. So that's how I lived my life every day. The library was so supportive of me that they paid me for, I believe, two to four months after this happened, but I was not allowed to work there because it was a public place. I also was told by my son's school, who was also my daughter's school back in the day, that I was not allowed to come on the property anymore. So I had to pull him out of school because I was on the front page of the town newspaper as like I heard a baby. Meanwhile, IZ had been released to the care of her parents and some home health care workers, but she was never expected to recover, and she finally passed away, tragically, on November 9th, 2003. And the autopsy was performed by a Dr. Jeff Harkey, who became critical to your defense, actually, later on in the case. Dr. Harkey performs the autopsy. He, he does brain sectioning, these other things, you know, notably, you know, he says he looked for fractures, of course, and didn't find any. By that point in time, there wouldn't have been any bruising to look for, right? Because it's almost a year after the, the baby first collapsed. Right. Instead of relying on a fuller picture of the child's health from earlier medical records and the CT scans and radiology from December 27, 2002, a lot of his autopsy report relied on the reports of the state's eventual star witness at trial, Dr. Emily Flaherty. And so eventually, he just essentially adopts those findings that it was shaken baby syndrome or abusive head trauma. Another critical piece that I really can't get out of my mind is, despite Dr. Flaherty knowing of the old brain bleed, the chronic subdural hematoma, she never mentions that in her report to the coroner. It's obviously a critically important issue of the case. I mean, she's not supposed to be writing a report only saying the things that support what she thinks because she thinks it's shaken baby syndrome. She's supposed to put in all the important medical findings, but she left that out. And as a result, Harkey didn't know about it. And so he calls it a homicide. He has since said, if I knew there was this old brain bleed, I would not have called it a homicide. Right. To his credit, he was skeptical of the SBS hypothesis even back then. But based on Flaherty's selective reporting of IZ's condition, he wrote in his autopsy report, quote, multiple organ failure due to anoxic ischemic injuries due to abusive head trauma, unquote, or AHT. And he continued on, quote, AHT occurred 10 to 11 months prior, unquote. So, I mean... Looking at IZ's body, which had lived, healed, and then died, how in the world does he know of the condition of the body 10 to 11 months earlier? He knows it based on Dr. Flaherty's report. He also noted no external injuries or trauma, as did Dr. Flaherty, which should have been an important red flag. 
experts like Dr. Flaherty do not think that's important. They, they literally do not think it's important as to whether there is bruising or even a red mark on a baby who they say is shaken with such force that, you know, passerbys would know that serious injury was being done to the child. They think it doesn't even leave a mark, but have no explanation for the common sense question of, well, why wouldn't it? I mean, come on, we're talking about an adult aggressively gripping and shaking a child. Anyone would expect to see some bruising, probably some significant bruising at the site of the alleged gripping, right? Nevertheless, they had their declaration that this was a homicide and wrenched up the charge to first-degree murder. Oh, my God, in April of 2004. Do you remember when you got that news, Jenny? I was making breakfast for my children, trying to live a normal life. I was working at Target by this time and got a call from my lawyer, Chuck. And Chuck is Charles Bretz, your trial attorney. I was sitting in my kitchen with my kids trying to eat breakfast when he called me. So I had to absorb all that and not react because my kids were there and I was trying to just have them live a normal life, even though I was terrified. So you surrendered yourself and your parents bonded you out as trial approached in February of 2005. And rather than going in front of a jury, you chose to have your case heard by Judge Carla Alessio Polichondriotis. Now, what made you opt for a bench trial over a jury? Most lawyers are almost always opposed to that. If you pull people off the street, they're not going to understand all this medical, the brain bleeds, the colors. I just didn't feel they would comprehend all of that. And I thought a judge was smarter and wiser and would understand the medical facts because I thought that's what they needed to focus on here. But they didn't, in my opinion. So, you know, they presented the, the family members of IZ. They presented some of the, the treating physicians. They presented the testimony of Detective Kroll, who put in this supposed confession. Right. The interrogation in which she said, quote, slight shake, which was good enough for their trickery at the grand jury to get an indictment. But even Detective Kroll had written in his report that Jenny never confessed to shaking the baby. But the most important thing they presented was Dr. Flaherty. I'm Kate Judson, the executive director of the Center for Integrity and Forensic Sciences. In the case of Jenny Delpreet, when the infant, IZ, was admitted to the hospital, scans revealed old and new bleeding within the coverings of the brain. Those earlier bleeds and their cause were not discovered or diagnosed prior to her collapse. Like many doctors at that time, Dr. Flaherty believed that subdural hemorrhages indicated child abuse. Then, when blood appeared in IZ's retinas several days later, that served to confirm Dr. Flaherty's beliefs. When she testified at trial, she said that those retinal hemorrhages can only happen in the case of an acceleration-deceleration injury, like violent shaking, when we now know that those findings can occur through short falls or underlying medical issues. IZ already had a history of general unexplained discomfort and seizure activity in just four months of life. In addition, her head circumference had expanded from the 50th to the 90th percentile in just 10 weeks. Rapid growth like this is unusual and can predispose a child to bleeding within the coverings of the brain or signal other problems. It's why that growth is monitored in the first place. However, none of this information was considered by the doctors who examined IZ. Dr. Flaherty went on to say that in addition to subdural hematoma, subarachnoid hemorrhages, and diffuse injuries, there were parenchymal lacerations and contusions. However, those injuries were not present, and no other doctor ever corroborated that claim. I mean, she gave what we know is medically wrong, inaccurate testimony. 
there were no lacerations or contusions as confirmed by all the radiology and the autopsy. So not only did she entirely omit the existence of the older brain bleed from her reporting and ultimate conclusions, which then misled Dr. Harkey in his autopsy report, but also now she's making up internal injuries that don't exist, all while ignoring the complete and total lack of injuries you would expect to see on the baby's chest where an adult would have had to have gripped the child but the doctor said it's pretty uncommon to find bruising in a case of shaken baby syndrome. That's like saying it's uncommon to find bruising in boxing or football. Like, oh, really? So I just referenced Dr. Harkey, who, unbeknownst to the defense, was not exactly a proponent of the SBS hypothesis, although he still, at least as was evidenced in his testimony, he still agreed that it was a valid theory. What did he say at trial? He essentially mirrored Dr. Flaherty's conclusions at the trial. But because his questioning of shaken baby syndrome in this case was hidden from the defense, and because his conclusion seemed so straightforwardly consistent with Dr. Flaherty, they didn't know there was any reason to ask him about these kinds of things. And to combat the state's witnesses, Jenny's attorney put on an expert in pathology and pediatrics, Dr. Wayne Tucker, who certainly did a more thorough assessment than Dr. Harkey. In addition to Flaherty's report, he reviewed the medical records, the initial CT scans and radiology police and paramedic reports, pictures, and the autopsy. And he testified that the gas drops in conjunction with amoxicillin can cause seizures. He then concluded that IZ's CT scan revealed acute and chronic brain bleed, as well as saying that he never saw an SBS case without bruising and that IZ's injuries occurred 18 to 24 hours before her collapse. Yeah, she was at home. Yes, Dr. Tucker did know about the old brain bleed, but didn't, didn't date it properly. The reality is it could have happened two or three weeks before the baby collapsed at daycare. And Dr. Tucker essentially said that it was not shaken baby syndrome in a nutshell. So then it just comes down to who the judge believed on timing more, the state's four consistent experts or the one dissenting expert, Dr. Tucker. So despite glowing character witnesses, including your co-workers who corroborated Izzy's history of discomfort, to put it mildly, Judge Polichondriotis ultimately sided with the state's experts. You look at me and you look at baby Iz, and of course you're going to have heartfelt emotions and feel sorry for her. Who wouldn't? So of course you're going to lean towards that if she had not said guilty. I feel like she would have too much pressure. She didn't want to deal with that. And that was March 4th, 2000, and you were sentenced to 20 years in prison. So March 4th was a horrible day for me. I dropped my son off at my best friend's house. He was eight, almost eight. Told him I'd be back later. I never came back. My daughter was at a high school sleepover function. I was supposed to be there for Sunday family day. and Instead, the day I was convicted was a Friday. It was not a good day, and then they took me in a room in the back, took off my blazer because they don't want you to kill yourself, so they take off your loose clothes that you can hang yourself with, I guess. And uh, I could hear all my family crying. I just, I did not want to live. So I went into shock by the time I got to the jail, and I literally fell down in the, in the room. And I just remember laying there in this room, and there were officers that came. They were all around me, and I could see their boots because I was laying there. And I remember one officer said, what's wrong with her? And the other officer said, reality. And they were just sitting there laughing. So that was my March 4th. 
Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I went into medical for two months. I wouldn't eat or talk. My family came to visit me. I ended up gathering enough strength to live in medical. I didn't want to go to general pop. And I wrote my son a book for his eighth birthday with a two-inch pencil. And I sent it home so they could type it out and create a book for him. And uh, when they came to visit, my daughter smuggled the book in the jail so that he could open it in front of me. And that was my son's birthday behind plate glass. I finally had enough strength to go down to General Pop and I became a tutor. And I taught women general math and reading skills for a long time with a nice nun that worked there for the prison named Sister Vivian. She helped me uh, live a better life than sitting in a room. She helped me have some motivation in there. Gave me a purpose. And I focused on constantly connecting with my children through phone calls and phone calls, which cost tons of money. So we had to do a lot of fundraising at home and 
the community in Willow Springs and Hickory Hills and Bridgeview, they just immensely helped me for the whole time. And uh, even the church there gave me $10,000 for my lawyer. They believed in me too. And uh, we just did the first appeal. The first appeal got denied. I honestly thought I'd be in there for about a year and I'd be home. I never thought in a million years it would take this this long. And your initial appeal was based on the fact that there was insufficient evidence to convict you. Insufficiency of evidence claims are very difficult to win on appeal because there's a very high standard of review. And and by this point in time, the questioning of shaken baby syndrome in the legal community was was building, but it was not at the state that it is today. Right. The first case to even win on the overwhelming doubt in the SBS hypothesis was a Wisconsin case, Audrey Edmonds, who we are actually going to have on the show in a few weeks. But her case didn't come undone until 2008. And here it was in 2007 in Illinois, where your state appeals had been denied. First on the insufficient evidence claim, and later on the ineffective assistance of counsel that you filed with a new appellate attorney, Tom Bradstrader. Tom Bradstrader stated somewhere in an interview that he used to stay up all night. He couldn't sleep after this case. He just felt like something was not right. And he, in 30 years of practice, this case bothered him the most. And his frustration led him to refer you to the Northwestern School of Journalism, Medill Innocence Project. And those students later made a huge discovery at just the right time. But for now, your appeals moved on to federal court in 2010 with Pat at Blagan and Garvey. So Jenny initially got put in contact with my law partner and wife, Jody Garvey, who sort of specializes in appeal, post-conviction, and federal habeas corpus work. You know, the thing that, that started us down the road of, of getting Jenny's conviction overturned was my wife's <laughs> brilliant idea to raise the issue of the trial lawyer did not challenge shaken baby syndrome under Daubert, meaning the the case that says, hey, scientific evidence has to be sufficiently accepted in order to be admitted in court. And no Illinois case had ever said that shaken baby syndrome does not meet the qualifications of Daubert. And Daubert, of course, is the 1993 Supreme Court decision which allowed courts to be gatekeepers of what is relevant and reliable expert testimony. So the aim was to raise in federal court this issue that had not been raised in state court, which is typically not allowed. They're procedurally defaulted. But Jody had this brilliant idea because one way to get an evidentiary hearing in the federal court is if you can establish what's called actual innocence, that means you get to raise in the federal court issues that you had never raised below. And so by establishing actual innocence, you could get an evidentiary hearing in federal court and for the first time in Illinois, challenge the reliability of the SBS hypothesis. And it worked. That's what got us the hearing, which brought all of this bad science, this garbage testimony to light. We drew Judge Kennelly, who was a very intelligent judge, and that was the first step towards Jenny's case getting reversed. So this evidentiary hearing in front of Judge Kennelly happened in December 2012 through January 2013, in which over the course of nine days, a number of experts testified for the defense this time, including Dr. Patrick Barnes, who said that IZ's first CT scan depicted a dark band between the infant's skull and the frontal lobe of her brain which he said constituted old collections of fluid. He stated further that those chronic collections were at least two to three weeks old, but could have existed since birth. Barnes said that cortical venous thrombosis, or CVT, was a likely cause of IZ's brain abnormalities. Also, a biomechanical engineer, Dr. Michael Prang, testified. 
So what Dr. Prang and, and others in that field say, and it's, it's undisputed now by the other side, two things. One, there has never been any threshold yet established for how hard you have to shake a baby, supposedly, to tear the bridging veins, which is what the shaken baby proponents say is the real injury, right? That you tear the bridging veins and a bunch of blood leaks into the subdural space. So that's important fact number one. Important fact number two, which undercuts years and years of testimony by shaken baby experts, is that biomechanical engineers proved with studies that shortfalls, and especially to a hard surface, creates much more force than any shaking back and forth can do. So that's one of the things that caused the shaken baby proponents to change the name from shaken baby to abusive head trauma. And it now causes some of them to say things like, well, I think the baby was shaken and then maybe thrown on the floor or thrown onto a couch or something. And there were even more defense experts, four more, in fact, including doctors Patrick Lance, Joseph Scheller, Jan Lietzma, and Shaku Tees. They were fantastic. They put in countless hours and all of them telling the truth. They get cross-examined for like, oh, you're doing this for money or you're doing this for some other reason. Utter nonsense, as Judge Kennelly found in his ruling. They weren't biased at all. They were just questioning what clearly was unsound science and unsound medicine. Yeah. And it seems at least one of the experts called by the prosecution had by now come to similar conclusions. A biomechanical expert, Dr. Rangarajan, who said, quote, the science of biomechanics could not determine the cause of IZ's injuries and the threshold necessary to produce head injuries in infants, end quote. So the state's case was imploding and it continued to do so. There's also another state expert, a Dr. Rourke Adams, who was on the stand trying to conduct a demonstration about the injuries on the brain while holding the photo of the brain upside down and drawing erroneous conclusions. It was just a disaster all around for the state, and it was about to get worse. As I mentioned earlier, the students at the Medill Innocence Project were also investigating this case. They had done a Freedom of Information Act request from the Romeoville PD, which gave way to a treasure trove of documents that had never been provided to any prior counsel. They were all assigned different packs, different piles of transcripts to go through. And Alex Hample was a student in his 20s at the time. He had his pile of papers and he found the letter. It's really like a memo that Kroll wrote, but we call it the Kroll letter. And just to summarize, the Kroll letter is Kroll memorializing that Dr. Harkey had expressed doubts that this was shaken baby syndrome and, of course, therefore expressed doubts that this was a homicide. And from then on, we, we knew we had a very strong Brady claim. And I'm just going to quote from this memo from Detective Kroll to Dr. Flaherty right after Dr. Harkey performed the autopsy. Quote, I'm writing to inform you of a twist in our case. The pathologist does not agree with SBS. A Plainfield police evidence tech who was present at the autopsy advised that Dr. Harkey did in fact question the diagnosis of SBS, looked for fractures in the rib cage, and found none. Dr. Harkey intends to summon all of IZ's medical records to see who determined this was SBS. Please call me when you have a few minutes to discuss the case. Unquote. And I've got to imagine that that phone call involved some sort of a plan to keep their prosecution on track. If Alex Hample didn't see that letter, I wouldn't be sitting here right now. So I give him a lot of thanks, and he's like an angel to me. So the hearings were reopened in June 2013, and from what I've read, Flaherty and Kroll were bending over backwards to cover their asses with the I-do-not-recalls that they kept repeating on the stand. They recalled. That was their safe word, their safe answer. So ultimately, thankfully, 
Judge Canelli saw through the farce of the SBS hypothesis and granted you a new trial, and you were released on bond on April 30th, 2014, released in this sort of limbo to await a potential retrial. Correct. It was a wonderful day. But then I had to, I wasn't really free. I couldn't leave the state. I missed my brother's wedding in California because the judge wouldn't let me go. I missed all of my nieces and nephews' births except for one. It was hard to find work. And that was still, they were talking about a retrial. So I was going to go through the whole nightmare over again. So your team filed successive post-conviction motions in state court, citing the clear and super relevant Brady material, that Kroll letter, and after an initial denial, the appellate court forced a hearing in which your trial judge vacated your conviction and ordered a new trial in May 2016. And at this point, the challenges to SBS prosecutions were continuing to build, while fewer and fewer doctors were willing to support this faulty hypothesis, although clearly there were still many left for the state to scrounge up while they dragged this along for over six long years. I felt like Will County just could not admit, okay, we were wrong. They just were not going to do that. They were going to fight it to the end. So finally, we come to the fateful day of October 5th, 2022. I had gotten their expert report, I think the evening before that, this new expert report from Bennett. And Dr. Bennett was the state's new pathologist. So what did this report say? The report was uh, was certainly not confident at all that there was even a homicide here and was sort of like, well, if this and if that, then maybe you could conclude this, which is not really the level of certainty needed to advance a crime. But I remember reading it thinking, I don't know how they're going to prove their case after this, and I'm going to have to talk to the prosecutor about this tomorrow morning because this is ridiculous. The prosecutor texted me while I was driving to Joliet, said, hey, I need to talk to you before court. And she was waiting for me in the lobby, meaning like downstairs, not even near the, near the courtroom. So we were just outside in the lobby in front of the courtroom. And Pat came over and told me and my dad that uh, they were dropping all charges and dismissing the case. And I just cried. I said, finally, finally, I remember saying that. And then I had to maintain my composure because we had to go into court and put it on record. The judge had no idea, and I was kind of overjoyed. I wanted to go skip up, but I didn't. I just maintained my composure, and the state told her, the judge, and the judge looked at me like she was shocked, and I said, I know. I said, hallelujah. I didn't know what else to say. It just came out, and uh, I cried, and the judge said, congratulations, and good luck to you, and gave me a box of tissue, and that was it. It was over. We understand that you're currently litigating a civil suit. Obviously, nothing, no amount of money could ever make up for what you lost, but we do hope that there's some semblance of justice is delivered. Do you have anything in the meantime that you'd like to ask of our audience, any action they could take? I would advise to always have, be on camera if you're taking care of someone's child. If you have to get your own, get a nanny cam, get your phone on, and just have the camera on all times because then you you would never have to go through this if you had proof. So. That is a huge thing that I would like to go fight to pass the law. Jennifer, thank you for that great advice. And now that brings us to my favorite part of the show, closing arguments. And closing arguments works like this. I'm going to, first of all, thank each of you for being here and and helping walk us through this insane saga. It's so important and, and so meaningful. And I can't tell you how much we all appreciate it. And then I'm going to turn my mic off kick back in my chair, and just listen for anything else you want to say. 
Yeah. So I, I really wish there were an institutional way in the law to get these kind of exoneration claims, these, you know, innocence claims done faster. You know, it is, as Jenny has expressed, it is unbelievably traumatic. And I would urge well-meaning doctors, you are doing good work. And, and you do see a lot of children who are actually harmed and abused. But don't let those thoughts overcome your, your logic and your sense of what's right and wrong when you're, when you're looking at these shaken baby syndrome cases. You think you're not diagnosing murder, but when you're coming into court and you're saying these things with such certainty, that's what you're causing to happen here. The medical community does need to focus more on evidence-based science and not express such certainty about things that you know you're not certain about. Okay, so I just want to address a couple of things. What happened to me affected a lot of people. My kids lost me for like their, the time they needed me most. My son became an emotional cutter. He's scarred from his shoulders all the way down to his legs. My daughter went through hernia mesh surgery while I was gone. She didn't have me there. She ended up in a wheelchair. She's overcome that now and doing great. She's first place skateboarder in the world. But when people go in jail, the family goes to jail too, not just the person. I think it's sad that people in a high stature job like a doctor or an officer or a detective wouldn't do their job by protocol and would alter things just to close somebody's case, just to throw somebody in prison. We're in America and we're supposed to be safe. We're supposed to believe in justice for all. But I, it took me forever to get justice. And I know plenty of people in prison that ended their lives. They couldn't handle it. And I considered it once, but I thought about my kids and my family. And that love that I had from them was enough to get me through that moment, not to do it. And there was more than one. I'm very sad about what happened to IZ. She was someone I cared for and I, I generally loved. And I'm very sad for the family. But I'm also sad that they didn't believe in me enough. I'm very hurt by that. Because everybody else, everybody else believed in me. So I just, uh, I'm grateful that I had the strength and the support that I had and the attorneys that I had and the judges that I had, except for Judge Goody. I'm very grateful I had all of them because I don't think I could have done this and got here to now. I spent nine years, one month, and 26 days in a place full of misery. So now I know all kinds of things. I know about prison travesties in there, how inmates are treated. And now if I'm alive long enough, I can fight for some of these things to be changed. And that's my plan, especially the daycare camera thing. So I just, I'm grateful and I'm also ashamed to live in a place that we say justice for all, but you have to fight for that justice. It's not just handed to you. And you're not innocent until proven guilty. You're guilty until proven innocent. I'm just grateful I can talk about it now and I survived it and I can educate and hopefully help a lot of people. That's my goal for the rest of my life. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction. I want to thank our production team, Connor Hall, Annie Chelsea, Lila Robinson, Jeff Clyburn, and Kevin Wardis. The music in this production was supplied by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast, and on Twitter at Wrong Conviction, as well as at Lava for Good on all three platforms. You can also follow me on both TikTok and Instagram at It's Jason Flom. 
Wrongful Conviction is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number One. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right. 